First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Kathleen Schein, author of the novel Kunstlers in Paradise. So to find the middle, have to reach the end and then look back. And then, you know, and then in terms of craft, then you fix things and try to make them work in terms of pacing and and plot. We'll be back with Kathleen Shine after these essential words. First, I want to say thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents nine and a half years of weekly interviews with writers on craft and the literary life. This interview is one piece of an archive of more than 380 conversations that go into depth about how writers create their work and the subject matters that obsess them. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. When you donate to First Draft, you're joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that is committed to sharing the insights and challenges of the writing life. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free to you. But it is not without expense to me in hard costs and in labor. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is a labor of love. But all told from scheduling, preparation, reading time, interviewing, editing, and finalizing each episode, we're talking about a minimum of 15 hours an episode. There's also equipment and subscriptions to interview platforms and sound transcripts and editing software and hosting services for the sound and a website for the archive. And those things added up are not cheap. And all of this, this whole entire colossal effort takes a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition every week. And please understand, I am the entire show from start to finish. I am the editor, the interviewer, the reader, the researcher, the staff. Sometimes the staff doesn't perform as well as I'd like, but I am the only person performing. So why not consider supporting a woman with a dream to share literary wisdom from some of the world's best writers in a podcast platform? I would say with the number of episodes I've produced, which is actually more than in the archive, so more than 400, my track record is pretty stellar. And please beat the odds of having to listen to this message seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. As a thank you, my patrons receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash first draft writers any amount is welcome but for six dollars a month you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis please stay tuned at the end of the show i'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear 
And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you mostly for listening and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My interview today is with Kathleen Shine, who is the author of 12 novels, including The Grammarians and The Love Letter. She has contributed to The New Yorker, The New York Review of Books, and The New York Times Magazine, among other publications. Her new novel, Kunstler's in Paradise, tells the story of Mamie Kunstler, a 93-year-old woman who moved from Austria to L.A. during World War II. At 12 years old, Mamie's immediate family and grandfather fled Hitler to arrive on the shores of what they thought would be a Mediterranean type of city. Instead, they found a surreal and sun-baked Los Angeles, a metropolis that was easy to get lost in. As the novel unfolds, Mamie is in quarantine during COVID with her grandson, Julian. They pass the time and deepen their relationship through the telling of stories. She shares with him about her past, many stories which she's never told before, about early eminent emigres who populated Los Angeles, working as artists, musicians, and actors. We began the interview with Kathleen Shine sharing the raw feelings and thoughts she was having that got transformed into the novel Kunstler's in Paradise. Two things, I think. One is um, moving to California. It, um, I've been here a little over, I've lived here full time, a little over 10 years. Um, before that, I commuted back and forth to New York. And, you know, place is very important to me in whatever I'm writing. So any book that I've written, there's a, a very obvious place. And moving to a new place, the light is different. The air is different. The space is different. The, the rhythms are different. And so moving to um, Los Angeles, to Venice, um, I thought, how can I ever write about this? Nothing it comes naturally to me. I'm just looking, looking, looking at everything new, and I, I don't understand where I am. And it took me about 15 years to get my bearings. And I mean, literally, um, you know, I was still thinking the valley was uh, to the east about two years ago. And this would explain why I was constantly getting lost. Um, so one of the things I really wanted to do was really explore um, Los Angeles, which to me doesn't mean driving all over Los Angeles and seeing all the different parts, which I hope will come gradually. But I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly agoraphobic, but I'm a, I'm a real hermit and stay at home. But it meant exploring the experience of being in California at this moment. And the moment turned into um, the COVID moment. And um, so, but there was that was one of that was an impetus. Like I really wanted to write about California as I was experiencing it and seeing it and coming to love it. Um, the other thing that happened was uh, I had <clears throat> reviewed a book, uh, a biography of Alma Mahler, um, Gustav Mahler, the composer's wild wife, um, who had affairs or was married to every important person in the modernist movement, Gropius, um, uh, um, Kakashka, all these people. And as I was reading about her, she ended up uh, for a while out here. 
in LA. And I started reading about all these other uh, German emigres who had come during the war, World War II, and ended up in Los Angeles. And I realized there was this whole community. And I had a real New Yorker prejudice against LA. It's a cultural wasteland. It was desert, that kind of thing. And of course, that's just not true. And so I became very, very interested in um, people like Thomas Mann and um, Arnold Schoenberg and this this whole community of of people who lived here came here partly because they could get work in the movie business. They were writers and composers and musicians and actors and directors, um, and and they kind of created their own little colony. And it was called the colony. And they all spoke German to each other, and they all had strong coffee, you know, and would meet up for coffee and. And and cake and and that kind of thing. And I thought, what a wonderful um, group of people to try to understand in this exile in a place that really is paradise, but is also at the time really was a sort of high cultural wasteland. So those were the two things that I was thinking of. And it took a while for those two things to find their path together, which was uh, Mamie the um Mamie Kunstler um who is tells her stories from when she was a child when she came here when she was 11 and met all these people um she tells all of her stories to her grandson Julian um who's a sort of he's he's in his 20s that's all I that I think that tells you enough um very sweet um, but really doesn't know what he's doing or where he's going. And he's stuck out here. He gets stuck out here during the lockdown with this grandmother. And that's how the two of them come together. And that's how the two uh, stories about being in exile, being in lockdown, which is a kind of exile, and being in exile from Vienna, which is what um, Mamie and all of these other people experience being in exile from Vienna, Berlin, Prague. So those are the, that's the raw data that went in. So Mamie came at about 1939 when she was 11 years old, and she was right. a Jew from Vienna, a well-to-do Jew. Her dad was a composer. She came from uh, she came with her mom, her dad, and her grandfather, who she was very close to. And I mean, just thinking about the stark physical difference between coming from Vienna, this old world, beautiful city to this place that was maybe they thought it would be kind of like the Mediterranean, but the sea is so much more wild and it's just a different place. And they were sponsored at the time for for work through people in Hollywood. So they were lucky to get out. And it's really this transition between the old and new world and, you know, how, how she adapted, especially in contrast to her parents and grandparents. And so once you had this interest in creating a character who kind of embodied all these people that you knew about in real life, how did you want her to experience the world? Like what was important for you to put into her character? Well, it was it was complicated, which made it interesting because she was a woman in her 90s remembering when she was 12. um, And she so therefore and she was 12. 
Um, so those points of view uh, I could play with a lot. And but it was, um, I think, a feeling which I, I read a lot, a lot of memoirs um, of people who came here. Some of them came when they were quite young, like like that. Some of them came earlier. Some of them uh, were adults when they came. But I read, but all of them had this feeling of um, safety, of relief, and of guilt, and that what they left behind was so devastating and that they could do nothing about it, and yet they were so grateful to be safe. And I think the um, the climate um, in the larger sense, but also in the sense of climate of Los Angeles played into that because it's so beautiful. The weather is so, be well, until recently, the weather has been so predictable and 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 beautiful. And to be in a place like that that's safe and lovely um, and be thinking about all of the people you've left behind who are, um, in the case of Mamie, are being you know, rounded up and sent off to camps. And in the case of um, Julian, are dying of COVID. Th th I wanted to get that feeling of relief and gratitude and guilt and um, that I was seeing in so many memoirs. But I also wanted for Mamie a sense of discovery of some of a place that was big and then an appropriation of it, of, of it becoming hers. Um, because when you're 12, you can you can do that. You move to a new place and you you can learn the language very quickly. You can learn the customs. It, it's a strange place that then becomes yours. So all of those things were um, at play as I was playing with with Mamie and what what she was feeling and what she was experiencing. And part of that was my experience of, you know, coming as a newcomer um, to L.A. and and seeing it in it in the from the eyes of someone who didn't understand it, but wanted to and gradually, you know, understood more about it and its beauty, because you can look at it and think it is the worst place in the world because it's got traffic and all the ugly highway freeways here. I, I still speak East coast, um, freeways. And, um, but then you realize that there are just, you know, it was, um, it, it started out as a series of native American villages and a, a sort of, um, necklace of of um, uh, places where people lived here and there and there, and uh, and and it's still like that. So you drive on the awful freeway, which should take ten minutes and takes an hour and a half, but then you get to the place you're going, which is something breathtaking. You know, it's someone's little house, but it's breathtaking. It's got it's got palm trees. It's got mountains it's got flowers so it's it's an amazing place i feel so that was that was something i really did want to have her discover that i was discovering so she is you know the epicenter of the book and then you mentioned julian who is her grandson who's in his 20s he's in new york new york he's very privileged he just feels like he needs to 
uh, or that he deserves a lot from his parents in terms of financial support, mm-hmm. living support. Mm-hmm. Um, and they kind of get to this place. They're like these Jewish kind of hippie, you know, socially aware folks who are like time to cut you off the teeth. Like you got to get out of here. And because Mimi was 93 and needed help, it just turned out lucky for him that he could go to L.A. and care for her for a little while. And then, as you said, he gets stuck for COVID. But he was really, really, really lost. And I think he found so much comfort and solace in in Mimi. But uh, I'm curious about the grandmother grandson relationship. You have two grandfather, granddaughter, grandmother, grand, uh, grandson, important relationships in the book. I was very close to my grandmother and my grandfather, although he died when I was quite young. Um, and my sons who are grown men now, um, were very, very close, uh, to my mother. Their other grandmother died when they were very, very young. Um, And it's just a relationship that I find so moving because uh, it's a kind of treaty that bypasses the country that's in between them, which is the parents. So grandparents can be very, very indulgent. That's one thing. Um, And I remember with uh, when my older son was little, his uh, my ex-husband's mother gave him something I had specifically said, no, no candy, no, none of that. But she gave him this giant uh, can that was full of different flavored popcorn, right? And then once my mother gave him this huge bag of candy and he opened it on the floor and started rolling in it. He was about three. And I thought, this is what grandparents are for. They don't listen to their children. Why would they? And they do listen to their grandchildren. And they're about the only people who do when the grandparent, when the children are that age, you know, um, people don't listen to children, but grandparents do. And um, I just, I just felt it was such an interesting alliance. And I watched my kids and my mother stay close, even as she had some dementia and, um, but they still had this bond, um, that excluded me completely. And I just found it very moving. Um, and so that was something I, I, uh, I wanted to, to write about and honor. And I would say at the center of this novel, it is about storytelling. That is what happens. That is the main link that brings Julian and Mamie together. She tells him stories about her life. And in that process, I think he heals. Um, I think she heals a little bit too, but it's, it's really more him. And so I'm curious about the role of storytelling in two ways. One, it's very hard, I think, in a novel to tell stories and keep the movement. Because, you know, you're told show, don't tell and keep it in scene. And so I think I'm curious about that and your thoughts about crafting that. And then secondly, just about storytelling and what that does. Well, I think in terms of the craft of it, um, as usual, when I write a novel, I mean, I I haven't taken a writing class since um I was in high school and took a class where we read Rogue Grier. So 
that's that's where I'm at for that. And I don't know the the language that, you know, and I'm always surprised when I hear other writers talk and they have such a good sense of structure. And it's my novels do not have uh, a really tight structure. And um, so with this one, it was kind of interesting for me to incorporate these stories, um, but not have it be. I, I wish it could be the Decameron, but you know, I'm not Boccaccio. I, I wish it could. I could be Chaucer, but I'm I'm not. But to incorporate stories and still have some movement forward, and so that required um, having the stories have an arc of their own. See, that's a word I learned finally. Um, to, you know, there's a narrative within the stories as well, at, and then have that also reflect on what was going on with um, with Julian and, and what he was experiencing and thinking and how he was changing and having these these two narratives interact. And it, it felt like a conversation finally. And um, so it was, uh, it was a challenge when I thought about it, but once I started doing it, um, it was, it was great. It was a kind of, it had its own very gentle momentum. And I'm curious, I mean, I see it in the book. You see Julian become more confident, become more self-aware, become more able to understand maybe why people were frustrated with him in New York and have more hope for his future. But I'm so I'm seeing the evidence of that. But I'm curious also in your words, like what effect, how would you describe the effect of the storytelling on Julian? Well, I think it gave him um, a sense of perspective, which people in their 20s often don't have. Why would they? Um, And. So that was that's very important for him because he is very self-important and a little self-indulgent, um, but with a good heart. And I think it also gave him a sense of history and that um, which, again, is a kind of perspective and that bad things happen. Good things happen. The world moves on. And what Mamie is giving him is his own history, his family history. Um, which I think allows him to expand um, in a certain way as as a person and have you know better understanding of what the world is and what his place is in it. So it, on the one hand, he sees how small his role is in the world because the world is huge and has you know so many things have happened that are not all about uh, Julian Kunstler. Um, and in another way, it expands him because he is part of all of that. All of that is, you know, within him. So I, th- I think that n- knowing history and um, knowing about different cultures, seeing other people. And, and here's the other thing, listening, which I think is hard for everybody. And Julian learns to listen um, instead of just complaining. For Mamie we see a lot of her trajectory because we're seeing her from basically 11 years old till 93 in, in little pieces of her life, obviously not all of it. And she had some extraordinary 
things happened to her. She met some extraordinary people. She met some of these people you mentioned yes. earlier, these, um, these icons of culture. She had a relationship with Greta Garbo. She, she knew people that everybody would be able to name um, from a list of names. So just curious about why it was important to have her have these moments in her life that were cultural references for people who were reading the book. Um, that wasn't really my uh, goal with doing it, but you know what I, one of the books that uh, really influenced me, influenced my decision to try to do this um, was by uh, a woman named Salka. I always say Salka Vertel, but it's actually Salka Fiertel is how you pronounce it. Um, and she wrote a wonderful uh, memoir called The Kindness of Strangers. And she uh, came here as, as an adult. Um, and she saw everything and she met everybody and she knew everybody. And I, I just got this feeling of this. Uh, that's where my journey into the memoirs and everything started because it was such a small community. And when you have a small community that, you know, includes Thomas Mann and Arnold Schoenberg, that's quite a small community. Um, and, um, so I became, you know, I just wanted to explore what it would be like to be a child surrounded by these people and not really knowing who they are, which is why when uh, Mamie, as a, um, I guess she's 13, um, meets Arnold Schoenberg, she doesn't know who he is, and, but they start talking about music. And he also t gives her tennis lessons. And... Um, you know, it just, I just, again, it's like another angle on people rather than what a biography would show or um, a novel about Schoenberg would show or about Mann. Um, it's a, it's a, just a sort of um, slanted, skewed, I hope not too skewed, but a slanted view of, of that period. Um, and I thought of, you know, a child's view um, especially a smart child like Mamie and one who then grows up and sees what she was actually experiencing and realizes it would be really interesting, um, a, an interesting look at these at these very, very famous, important people, cultural icons, as you say. But when you're a child, you don't know what a cultural icon is, except for pop star. So the stories when she's telling them, like you were saying, they have an arc, they're so alive, we're in the present with her when she's swimming with Greta Garbo or playing tennis. But then you come back to her at 93 and all these people are gone and dead. And there's also a kind of wistful loneliness um, in her life. And I'm not saying that she said that, but I felt that. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm not 93. I'm close, but <laughs> not yet. Um, but I, I know people, uh, who are 93 and, um, have known people and there is, um, even with the sharpest, most engaged people who are in their nineties or eighties or seventies, even you, you start 
looking back and it's even if you're surrounded by family and friends, there's a loneliness for the family and friends and the milieu that is not that doesn't exist anymore. I think that's called nostalgia. Um, and I think it's it's a little bit what what Mamie feels. And the other thing is when you reach a certain age, you're all your friends, all your contemporaries are are gone. And there you are telling your stories to this, you know, this shallow 23-year-old, so 24-year-old. So um I think that's a, you know, I think that's a hazard, one of the many, many, many hazards of of old age. I don't think there's any way to avoid that either. And I guess in a way it's the poetry of life and and you're better off to be prepared because when you're living all the stories that she was telling, when you're living, you know, anywhere between, you know, your youth and your probably 60s, everything just feels really alive. And then it all starts kind of disappearing. And I, I don't know if we talk about that enough in our culture to prepare for that sort of loneliness and emptiness that can happen. Like not to be bleak, you know, we always have to just stay active and keep our mind engaged, but um, it's just true. Look, you don't, you know, you don't stop living when you're 80 years old. Uh, and, and I know a lot of people who are in their eighties and they are much more active and their lives are full of things um, much more active than I am certainly. And, but I think at a certain point, I mean, we, one of our friends says, whenever someone dies, who's around our age, you know, then we say, Oh, they're coming for our class. And, um, you know, that's what it feels like sometimes, but it doesn't mean you give up or you've, you know, you're just now all you think about is the past. But I think you do start thinking more about, you know, like, how did I get to be this age? I used to be that age. And remember when I did this and I did that and I, I don't understand how, how this happened. Um, so it's, you know, it's aging is one of the things it's it's just inexplicable and bizarre because when you're young, all you want to be is older. And when you're old, you know, you try to look younger. And I would, I, I'm so happy I'm not in my twenties. I can't tell you. Um, I'd much rather be as old as I am than be in my twenties again. But, um, but it, when I was in my twenties, I just wanted to be, you know, a grown up, and, um, and I wasn't it took a while. So yeah, it's it's just one of those very confusing things, which makes it interesting to to write about um, and think about. Not as a not as a sad thing, but as a you know, it's a it's just a different perspective that for anyway for for writing is uh, is very interesting and sort of exciting to write about. Yeah, and I think at that period in life, sometimes you do go back to. It's that nostalgia you're thinking about that time in your life when all these exciting stories happen and you you actually have a line in there about moving back toward your parents when you're old. It's something that Mamie's thinking about because she's seeing sort of Julian moving away from his parents, but she is thinking more about her parents. I mean, partly because she's telling these stories about when they were young and she came to America, but that you know, and what you were saying, like your family becomes more 
central and these memories of if there's some point where you felt the most alive, that's where your brain goes. I I think that's probably true. Um, and well, I think that another thing that happens, at, at least that I have experienced as I've grown older, is I, I'm now, you know, I have now gone through many of the stages that as a child and as a teenager and as a young adult, I saw my parents go through. And now I understand them. You know how your parents sometimes say to, say to you, you'll see, you'll see when your age, when you're my age, when you have children of your own, you'll understand, you know, and it's true. It, it takes, sometimes we're so self-centered and, and as we should be when we're young, we have to be to survive and to grow and to move forward. But at, you know, as you, as you get a little bit older, um, you start understanding the other side of the equation, which is your parents and what they were going through and what, what, how they felt about, um, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, that I insisted having broken my neck in a car accident in the hospital in traction apps at the age of 16 absolutely insisted that I, I had to go to Woodstock. I mean, to me, it was obvious. I had to go to Woodstock. They could put me in a body cast. My friends would take me in a van and I couldn't understand them. And, um, now I do. So you, you start to, you know, see the absurdity of your self at those ages, whereas at those ages, you could only see the absurdity of your parents. And the wonderful thing for me about writing is I get to see the absurdity of, of all stages of life and of relationships and, and, and write about that. And that's, that's a great joy. And, um, it's a, it's a great gift of the universe to, to be able to do that. I'm assuming you didn't make it to Woodstock. I couldn't even sit. Uh, I had tongs screwed into my head. I broke my neck. No, I couldn't go to Woodstock. My my other favorite is I insisted one summer, it may have been the summer before, I'm not sure, that um, I wanted to go to stay in a, um, I think I was 15 or something, and I, I wanted to go stay in a commune in San Francisco with my boyfriend. And my mother said, no. Absolutely. My father, forget it. My, my, my mother, who was the, you know, more indulgent one said, absolutely not. And, you know, and I wanted them to send me to pay for it, to give me money. And she said, no. And I said, well, you would have paid for summer camp. Okay. So, so when I write about, you know, young people with no perspective, I know of what I speak. Yeah. No commune for you. No commune for you. Exactly. (laughs) There's a moment in the story too, where Mamie, I think she's, she's talking about coming from Vienna and she's telling, it's actually in a moment where I think Julian, he meets a woman named Sophie there who has a dog and he's walking Mamie's dog and they become friends and hang out and he's sort of regurgitating and retelling the story. So there's kind of like this lifeline for the stories, their own kind of energy. And she had said something, I think in the story where she said, one's trauma becomes banal when it's trotted out too many times. I'm wondering if you if you remember writing that and and 
you know, talk about that a little bit. I do remember writing that. I remember it very well because I had shied away through until I got to the end of the book from writing about specific instances of Nazi aggression per, um, in Vienna of things that Mamie would have seen. I, I just, I thought, I thought, really, you're going to write one more time about someone, you know, an old lady having to scrub the sidewalk um, while people jeered at her. And I just couldn't do it. I thought, you know, it, it, I don't, it's something that shouldn't just be thrown into a novel because it's a, it's a terrible thing that happened. And how do you, how do you um, treat it with the awe, the horrified awe that it deserves without becoming, um, without it becoming a kind of pornography and um, so it was very hard for me to get to the point where I could I could write about that. Um, and I mean, very hard. And finally, I just thought, well, then write about then have Mamie say that Mamie understands that. But she also knows it's very, very important to tell these stories and the fact that they've been sort of co-opted by pop culture um it doesn't lessen the fact that they happened and and stories telling stories is a way of passing history down and tradition and um it's a very important one and you can't shy away from it um you know because because it might sound i don't know i just didn't know if i was up to it so i it was something i really really tried not to have to do but you can't write a novel that has any truth to it at all about someone leaving vienna in 1939 for the united states a jewish girl without mentioning <laughs> what was happening in vienna and why they had to leave and um so finally i i i in incorporated my concerns into Mamie as a character and her concerns and talking about how, you know, nothing is banal. Um, even if it happens over and over, even if we read about it over and over again, it's not banal to the person to whom it happened. And that's, so that's why I, I had to write those passages. And she was, you know, because she was so young when she came, she was able to fit in to L.A. eventually, not at first, but eventually in her own way, in ways that her grandfather and father especially couldn't. Mm -hmm. And her father right. was a character who could not handle living with the guilt. There's so much guilt about getting out. Um, they were so lucky to get out. And yet their community, the people that they loved back at home died. And that was a, a big mm -hmm. part of his experience in LA. You know, in, in the beginning of the book, he's the one who's most optimistic and, um, you know, we're going to, and, and, and the most patriotic in a way, um, America it's, we're in America, it's free, we're safe. And the more he, is in this um, beautiful place under the palms, um, 
the the more the the difference of of his existence and what's going on in Europe um, hits him, and the, and he just begins to feel terribly guilty. He also does not thrive in the new climate, and you know, in terms of his um, his work, uh, which many many of the emigres, you know, were quite. Um, successful and and uh important in in Europe and when they came here they were not understood they were not um embraced i mean thomas mann's brother heinrich mann was by many people considered the more important better writer but here you know n- nobody read him nobody nobody had heard of him and he was a, not a happy person and not and had no money and um uh, so, you know, I I was interested in that experience of guilt and disappointment in America as much as I was interested in the experience that many emigres had of, you know, just relief and gratitude. And like Thomas Mann loved L.A. and was very sad to have to leave because of all the McCarthy stuff. Well, it's pre-McCarthy, but... The um, House of Un-American Activities uh, made it very difficult for him to stay, and he had to leave his beautiful house, which still is here, and you can go see it, and it's quite wonderful. Yeah, it would be really, I think, hard to live with that guilt. You know, you're you're inhabiting these two worlds at once, even though you're in L.A., you're always thinking about the people back at home, the things you lost, everything you left. You know, for Mamie, she was so young. She didn't have that as much. I mean, she had it, of course. Um, But um, as she, you know, starts to really fit into the culture and get married, although she didn't stay married very long and have children, she got that sort of American dream. And um, as she's telling all these stories to Julian, there's a moment where she has a picture. I think it's her at a lake with Greta Gar- Garbo. And she puts it in her pocket and doesn't really show it to him, I don't think. And there's a, a sense there where you realize as a reader that no matter how many stories you tell, you all st- always also still have this private life that no one gets to know. Right. And that's, that's something, um, you know, I struggled with that toward the end of the book. Was she going to share that or not share that with Julian? Um, And finally realized, no, this was hers. And, um, and you're allowed to have your own stories um, that are, that once, and I know this from writing, once you write a book it's and it's out there it's not yours anymore i mean you have the book yours your book is your book you wrote it no one can change that but once it's out there it turns into however many copies um are distributed however many people read it it turns into their book and it's interpreted and according to almost every writer misinterpreted by you know everyone who reads it um and that's the way it is. And that's the way it is with stories. They're handed down, they're shared. But once you share something, it's not yours alone. And some things are too precious or too awful to to um, to share with someone, even with your grandson who you're trying to um, 
bring into a world of greater sophistication and understanding. It's it's it was it was too precious for her and, and private. Toward the end, she's thinking about why she's telling these stories, and I want to read a paragraph and, and talk about it. Um, she said, "You wrote, knowing she was near the end of her run, she thought." It should be possible to look back and search for the middle of her story. But each time she did, the middle seemed to shift. The numerical middle, 46 and a half, was indistinguishable from 46 or 45 or 8 or 9 and on and on. Perhaps life did not have definite middles, just beginnings and ends and everything in between. But stories were not life. Stories were different. Or were they? So I was thinking about how... You know, I often think that, like, where was the middle? Like, if I die tomorrow, <laughs> did I, was I, I hope I was living that moment, like, with some kind of exaltation. It's something we don't know. I was just wondering about this paragraph, but also the middle of stories that craft-wise, it can be so hard when you're at the middle to keep things going. Yeah, and I have found I don't... um always know where the middle is until I've finished, which is a little bit what Mamie is saying, um, because, because there's a certain amount of unpredictability to life. I mean, a certain amount, there's hundred percent amount of unpredictability to life. Um, and I think, um, in terms of when, when you're, when I'm writing a novel, I want to um, protect that and not have it be, you know, absolutely, here's the beginning, here's the middle, here's the end, which which means, you know, some of my books, the, the you know, the plots are a little loose, um, but I prefer that because I feel that it has a rhythm that I understand. Um, and so to find the middle have to reach the end and then look back and then, you know, and then in terms of craft, uh, then you fix things and try to make them work in terms of pacing and, um, and, uh, and plot. Um, but yeah, you, I think it's, I think Mamie's saying what Mamie is saying, I think is true in life. I certainly feel that I can't, I don't know. I, I do know that I have finally had to stop saying I'm middle-aged um, or late, even late middle age. It finally hit me with the last birthday. Um, <clears throat> but, um, but I don't know where the, where was the middle? I, I, I don't know. And I, I won't ever know because by the time we know where the middle is, I'll, you know, I'll be dead. So it's a, it's a sort of interesting um, um, conundrum. I just think it's true in books and I think it's true in, in life. Are you a big reviser? What's your revision process like? Yes. I, uh, <clears throat> my, when I write, I try very hard not to think about whether it's the first draft, which of course with the computer, there is no first draft. There's, you know, a continuous first draft because just keep revising as you go. But, um, I, I try very hard to just get it on paper, get it on the screen, <clears throat> get it written, and then go back and, and make it good. Um, because otherwise, it's I, I find it's really paralyzing if I think, oh, this sentence. I mean, when I started this, this uh, novel, 
I would write a sentence and I would think that is the worst sentence I've ever read in my life. Like the first sentence of the book. So I'd erase it and I'd write another sentence. I think, nope, that's the worst sentence I've ever read in my life. I was completely paralyzed. It was, it was COVID. It was politics. It was the first time in my life I've had what I suppose might be called writer's block. Um, actually, and, and, and so I, and actually a little bit that happened with the last book and I devised a, a method, um, which is very old fashioned, which is take a pad and take a pen and sit down and possibly have a glass of bourbon and just write and, you know, just write whatever and, uh, see what happens. And then, you know, then you'll make it good. And that's always been my theory and my way, but I had to find a new way into that uh, in the last two books because I was just so caught up in uh, the big, awful world, which, you know, makes it harder when you're on Twitter four hours a day. So luckily, Twitter no longer appeals. So that's been that's been a, a relief. Um, yeah. And you ended up with, they were told Los Angeles would be like the Mediterranean. That's yeah. your first sentence. You can live with that. Yeah. 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 I, I like that. I, I usually am pretty happy with my first sentences. It's all the ones after that you have to, you know, but yeah, that, and that was written fairly early, um, early on. And um, although you know, a lot of times when I'm really stuck, I, I will write in the first person and then later thinking that's how I want to write the book. And then later I change it to the third person. Um, that's a, or, or vice versa. That's a kind of way of just getting through something where you're stuck, um, to just change the perspective. It changes the perspective tremendously actually. And, um, for this one, I, I realized I needed some distance um, and uh, from from Mamie, I needed it not to be this very close, you know, Mamie thought this, Mamie thought that in the beginning, because it's the whole family. And uh, I found that by writing in the first person, I was able to actually distance myself, which doesn't always happen. And then I put it back in the third person. It's, it's um, you know, it's all a it's a sort of a playful torture. Can you read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer? Yes, this is uh, from the novel Pictures from an Institution, one of my favorite novels in the whole world, um, written by the poet Randall Jarrell, his only novel. So this is a description of uh, Gertrude, who is based on Mary McCarthy. She was a mousy woman till she smiled. Her teeth bared themselves, counted, and their lips went over them. Her smile was, I think, all that people have called it. It was like a skull, like a stone marten scarf, like catatonia, like the smile of the damned at Bamberg. The slogan of the company that manufactured it was as false as Cressida. Torn animals were removed at sunset from that smile, and yet it was only a nervous grimace, her one attempt to establish an ephemeral rapport with her world. One would have said her body thought, and her body had kinder thoughts than she. 
That skull's grin was no memento mori, but Gertrude's admission that she too had to live. That's Mary McCarthy. Yeah. So can you share more why you chose that? I chose that basically at random because I could choose any paragraph from this book. There's a way that Jarrell writes that um, takes um, cliches or dead metaphors and treats them respectfully as if they were alive and meant something and just, you know, uses them comically. And his, um, I mean, there are just, there's so many instances of wonderful stuff in here. Um, And so I just chose that at random. I just, I love the style. It's, he's, you know, he can tear someone apart like Gertrude's teeth. Um, And it's also very, very warm toward, there's a character in the book um, who's a composer who, and it's quite interesting actually reading it now after a long time, um, because in some ways it reminds me of of Schoenberg, but but there's a composer who's actually based on Hannah Arendt and who's who's you know got this uh who's got this wonderful warmth to him. And um so yeah it's just it's every sentence is some sort of inverted metaphor that makes me laugh. That's all. Can you read a passage that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or something you liked. So did I want to emancipate dissonance, Mamie asked Julian. You bet I did. She had never considered it before, but yes, emancipation was necessary. It was urgent. Poor struggling dissonance trapped and voiceless in its incomprehensible octave. This would be like freeing the lions at the zoo. You question the conventions and seek meaning in something greater. Isn't that so, the man said? Doesn't everyone? Your father tells me you question the scale. Then before, um, Mamie had never seen her father so deferential to anyone. This made the man even more interesting. She wanted to be deferential too. She stood up, offered her hand and said, I am Salomea Kunstler, known as Mamie. Then, before he could introduce himself back to her, she said, who created the scale? Don't say God, please, sir. God, but we will talk of God and creation both, the man said, if you will allow. And again, the mischievous smile, the piercing eyes. If you wish to understand the nature of creation, you must ask yourself this question. Was there light before God said, let there be light? Of course not. How can you create light if light already exists? Mamie was mesmerized. This distinguished man had become almost merry, dancing from foot to foot. You cannot, you cannot, he cried. Then, still dancing with excitement, he said, but if there was never any light before God said, let there be light, then how did God know what light was? He stared at her. He clapped his hands together. That is creation, he said. So anyway, that, you know, that was very tricky and difficult because it's very complicated stuff. And I had to use a lot of stuff from his letters and talks and things like that. Plus I had to understand what um, dissonance was and why scales exist. I mean, I had 
six months, honestly, of trying to understand music theory and going back to, uh, you know, um, going back to Pythagoras, basically, to try to understand what a scale was. So that was tricky. Fun, but tricky. Where do you write? I used to write in bed. It was the greatest discovery ever that that was the best desk imaginable because you could have all your food on it and also just lean over, have a nap whenever you wanted um, without having to get up. But then we got a puppy and the puppy liked to get on the bed and chew up all the papers that were on the bed. And it was a complete disaster. And um, so, uh, and it was during the lockdown and we decided we would never have a guest again because we were, you know, this was life now. So we changed our guest room into an office and my back, which used to um, make me not be able to sit, somehow got better. And now I have a, a desk and this is where I work. It's, in, it's a whole new world. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I go to the beach and I walk the dog and, uh, or rather I take her, I let her off the leash and she runs up and down and up and down like a maniac. And I walk behind her. Um, it's completely renewing and, um, it's, it's wonderful. And I don't really think about anything except, and I just glory in the fact that I'm, you know, on this incredible beach winter or summer. And, uh, and I just watch her and see how the sand changes and what's washed up and, um, yeah, it's, it's a complete, and I come home and I just feel like a different person, like a person as opposed to a rag of a person. So the beach. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, I show it to my wife, Janet, who's an incredible editor in both senses of the word. I mean, she's a very good line editor, but conceptually she's in the movie business and, um, she's really good at, uh, um, conceptually sort of seeing where, where something could go, which I didn't notice or where it is going, which I wasn't aware of, um, or where it should go where sometimes, she, you know, she has, she forgets she's not the producer in this case. Uh, she's not the director. She's just, you know, Janet giving me a lot of help. So sometimes we butt heads, but she's usually right. She's great. I'm incredibly lucky. How have you dealt with rejection? It's funny, even, I think, I don't know if every writer feels this way, but even acceptance feels like rejection most of the time. I just feel like anytime I've gotten a good review or someone likes a book, I think, oh, I dodged a bullet. They haven't figured it out yet. Um, they haven't caught me yet. So rejection somehow just feels like confirmation of that. But I will say this, I remember, I don't remember good reviews. I remember lines from bad reviews from, you know, 40 years ago. Um, so mostly I'm in denial on all levels, but yeah, it, Frankel. So I just, um, I try not to, not to think about it. That's denial is, is my, is my uh, secret 
my superpower. What is your favorite word? I actually have a favorite word. Um, I actually have three favorite words, but um, one of them is irony. It was I because because I remember as a child saying to my mother, I don't understand the difference between irony and sarcasm and her trying desperately to explain it to me. And I still sometimes have to, you know, I still have to think, what is irony? And so a word that you are still thinking about, you know, all these many, many decades later, that's kind of a a favorite word and a word that means so much. Um, Another word that I love is um, egregious because it's a great word, but it also, the meaning of it, it comes from Latin ex gregio, which means out of the flock, ex and gregio is the flock. So that always, and when I was um, a graduate student, um, I wrote, or yeah, I think I was a graduate student, but anyway, uh, I was studying Latin and one of the, uh, in medieval Latin, the word, in, in, in classical Latin, the word otium means leisure. And in medieval Latin, it means sloth. And I always found that progression so interesting that that's become one of my favorite words that I just sometimes think about. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. This was really, uh, I mean, what could be better than, uh, you know, getting to talk about one's book for an hour? Thank you so much. It's better than a shrink. If you like today's show with Kathleen Shine, author of the novel Kunstlers in Paradise, check out my interview with Jim Shepard on his novel, The Book of Aaron. We talked about finding conflict in historical heroic figures, the difference between innocence and agency when writing about children, and depicting World War II-era Jews on the page with diction, cadence, and syntax. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 400 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Mona Simpson, Andrew Porter, and Elizabeth Graver. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.